for your second coming. And so God, I pray in the moments that we have today, this coming week, uh, whether it's waiting for a meal on a hungry stomach and we're feeling hangry, it's waiting for uh, opening presents, God, that we would be able to wait in such a way where we can hold loosely to the things of this world because we're waiting with expectancy and anticipation. We're waiting with endurance for the ultimate arrival of Jesus, for the final fulfillment of your great promises. So God, form in us what the gospel forms, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. God, uh, may our lives be marked by these things because we're believing the gospel. We're waiting upon you and we're trusting you to form these things in us, to transform our sinful hearts and to save us ultimately. In your great name I pray, amen. begin to see and admire. Welcome to Center Church. My name's Kevin. I haven't met you before. Currently in a sermon series going through the Gospel of John, and um, we typically what we do here is we preach through books of the Bible. Uh, one, it gives us kind of a flow of what the biblical storyline is. Uh, also, we just model, in doing this, we model the fact that we value the Bible, we value what it has to say. And, and another reason why we go through books of the Bible is, honestly, there's parts of the Bible that are hard. Hard to understand, hard to stomach at times. And when we go through, straight through a book of the Bible, we just, we can't skip over them. It's not like I can just pick and choose, like, oh, I like this or I like that, and we're just going to focus on those things. This, this forces us to wrestle with the harder questions, the harder things in the Bible. And so we are currently in John chapter 5. John is the fourth book in the New Testament, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you guys have a physical Bible, you can turn there. If you've got a Bible on your device, you can swipe there. Uh, otherwise, you can follow along on the screen behind me as well. So just a little recap as to where we're at. We, we're in the third week of um, it's basically the same story. So two weeks ago, we learned of Jesus healing an invalid, a man who had been lame for 38 years. He healed him, but, but then even prior to that, we've seen Jesus um, perform a number of different miracles, varieties, whether it's physical, it's emotional, spiritual. And so uh, we've seen him continually healing people. We've seen him calling himself God. And, and he has said, he stated to people that they must believe in him if they are to escape condemnation, if they are going to be saved. So what we see Jesus doing is making some pretty massive claims about himself. He's doing some pretty, uh, some, some things that would cause uh, some disharmony, that also that he's displaying power in a way that it's just not normal at all. And so when we look at the response that Jesus is getting, we see that there's this really mixed response. Some people are all in. They're like, I'm following this dude. But other people, like the people that we're learning about today and that we, we learned about last week, they, they want to kill him. They're like, I'm not, I'm not in this. Uh, I don't, I'm not for this guy. I don't, I'm not cool with what he's doing. And ultimately what we're seeing is they don't like this primarily because Jesus is taking from them the thing that they want, which is power and control and importance. And so, today we're going to finish up, uh, basically, the whole thing today is just Jesus responding to his opponents. And, and he's, he's, they've come against him, they say they want to kill him, they don't like what he's doing, and this is the second part of his response to these people. So, John chapter 5, and I'm going to begin in verse 31 and read to the end of the chapter. And Jesus says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. 
Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? So in summary, these 17 verses are basically Jesus listing the witnesses that point to him. His father, John the Baptist, who we affectionately call JB around here. Uh, the signs or the works that Jesus is doing. The scriptures themselves and Moses also. So basically, we're just going to look at six examples who are bearing witness about Jesus, who are pointing to him. So Jesus said last week, one of the things that he said was, I can do nothing on my own. And so in this, he's saying, the things that I do, I'm doing because I'm looking at my father and I see my father doing these things. So that's the reason why I'm doing them as well. I can do nothing on my own which apparently also means, as we read in verse 31, that he cannot testify about himself. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. Now, in saying this, he's not saying that his statements are false. He's saying that there needs to be further witness to, to verify what he is talking about. This is an appeal to the Old Testament. Now, the people that Jesus is talking about or talking to right now, these are people who are people of the law. They are law abiders. They're coming against Jesus because he's not obeying the law, the laws that they have set forth and the laws that they think God has set forth. But Jesus makes an appeal here when he says that if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. And this appeal goes to Deuteronomy 19.15, which says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. So in the court of law, in that time, a, a, a charge could not be brought against somebody. Somebody could not be convicted of a crime unless there was more than one witness. And Jesus is saying, right now, I'm only witnessing about myself, so I can't be deemed true. There has to be someone beyond myself. And so Jesus is speaking their language. He's referring to the law, and they would say, oh yeah, I'm down with this. I can jive with that. His defense against his opponents is logical, and it's contextualized for those who are listening to him. Now, I don't know, if you have kids, uh, I don't know how this goes in your house, but I have this thing in my house where um, I'll, I'll just pretend, okay, because this happens many times. My two middle children, uh, Summer is six years old and Blake is four years old. So I will be beckoned into a room, uh, whether they were trying to get me there or it's because of yelling that's happening between them. And, and there's a fight that's going on. And, and so I will impose myself into this conversation and I'll, I'll ask, Summer, what happened here? And she'll say, Blake hit me. And he'll be like, nuh-uh, I didn't do that. And, and what, what I get initially is I get two very different accounts of what's going on. Summer says one thing, Blake 
says another. And so then we have to dig into why one of them is wanting to basically kill the other one right now and understand how did we get to this point and try to figure out how we can marry up their two witnesses so that they can then be saying the same thing. But, but I encounter this all the time where I have one person who, who has testimony, who bears witness about uh, a scenario and someone else is contradicting. Jesus is saying, there has to be more than me. Someone else, something else has to bear witness about who I am and what I am doing. And Jesus is going to push this even further as we get into the, these verses later on. And so he's pushing further even than others must testify of, my, of, of me. And he's going to push this on those who are opposing him. In verse 43, he says, If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. And so he's saying, someone else will come to you, namely John the Baptist, who we're going to talk about next, and he's going to say, I'm this or I'm that. And you're going to believe him based on his testimony. But now when I am saying things about myself, you're not taking it. You're not receiving it. So what's the disconnect here? And, and Jesus is pointing out that there's hypocrisy going on. You're dealing with this person in this way, but you're dealing with me in a different way. So when I'm talking about bearing witness this morning, basically what I'm meaning is that someone else has to vouch for somebody else. Someone else has to, has to vouch for Jesus, has to agree with the things that he's saying about himself. And he's going to point out over and over again that there are others who do this. So Jesus gives us an example of someone specifically, and that's John the Baptist. In verse 35, Jesus says, John the Baptist was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So the Jews were hopeful about John. They came to him, they saw that he was baptizing, and they're like, who are you? Who are you? Why are you doing these things that suggest that you're very important? Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you some important prophet? He wasn't any of those things, and his light faded in the eyes of the Jews because of the message that he brought. But, but what's going on here is a narrative of our existence as well. Something new comes along. could be technology, right? But something new comes along, and we see how it glistens. We see its attractiveness and we say, oh, this is the greatest thing. And it's great for a week, right? Like in my house, the way that this gets displayed best is with toys. My kids will talk about a toy for months and, and then they'll get the toy and they'll enjoy it for one to six days. We'll give them about, that, that's about what the lifespan of a toy. And, and then it's like, Hey, where's that thing? Like right now, it's the fidget spinner, right? Like, where's that fidget spinner? And they're like, mm, yeah. and, and that's the excitement that our kids have for this thing that they dreamed about and talked about for months, but now it's just, eh. and, and this is part of what's happened with John the Baptist. His light has faded in the eyes of the Jews because he insistently and repeatedly has proclaimed Jesus. He said, behold, this is the Lamb of God. Look at him. He is the Son of God. And to the dismay of the Jews, he said, there is one who comes after me who is greater than I. And what we see going on here in verse 36 is that John the Baptist and Jesus are saying the same thing. John the Baptist had said, there is one who comes after me who is greater than I. And now Jesus is saying, I am greater. The message that I bring, the words that I speak, are greater than that of John the Baptist. And so here we have two witnesses saying the exact same thing. Now, Jesus makes clear to point out, he doesn't depend on the witness of John the Baptist. He's not depending on it, but he says he's giving the example of John the Baptist so that the Jews might be saved. Because he knows that John the Baptist holds sway in their minds. So that's why he gives that example. But notice here what Jesus does when he says, I give that example so that you might be saved. Understand, or, or let it hit you, that Jesus wants these people to be saved. The people that want to kill him. That's who he wants 
to be saved. And, and we just don't see this, right? Like this should blow our mind. This is the God who calls us to himself. And not just calls us to himself, but he comes after us. And, and maybe we're not the people who would say, I want to kill you, Jesus. But maybe we want Jesus, in our actions at least, we want him to die a slow death. We wouldn't be so abrasive and blatant to say, I want you to die, Jesus. But maybe in our actions, continually running to sin rather than running to Jesus, we want him to die a slow death. Maybe not the crucifixion, but this slow death, like uh, someone who torches someone else, and, and there's this slow drip towards death. And, and maybe that is, that's a scenario, that's a narrative on our own hearts and w- the, ways, the, the way in which we might um, look at Jesus or, or walk out our faith life. Okay, so Jesus tes- testifies about himself. And then he says, John the Baptist also testifies about me. And then he goes to the testimony of his signs and his works. In verse 36, he says, The very works that I am doing, they bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So thus far in our series, we've seen Jesus demonstrate power that has never been seen by these individuals in the fact that he will heal people. We've seen him display authority in the words that he speaks, whether it's healing somebody or it's calling somebody to himself, saying, come and follow me. There's authority in his words that people have not encountered before. We see in Jesus, he cares for people who are forgotten, people who are overlooked, people who are dismissed. Jesus goes to them and he cares for them. And we can fast forward the story and we could say the sacrifice that Jesus displays in dying for his enemies. So if we look closely at Jesus' works, the signs that he has done and that he will do, we don't see a life of disappointment. We don't see all these promises being made about Jesus and then there's all this unmet potential that Jesus has in his life. His life is full of the works of God. The signs displayed in and through Jesus testified that he came for something grand. His works are weighty. The word that's used in the Bible for weightiness is that of glory. His works are glorious. They are the works of his Father, and yet these Jews ignore them or they are blind to his works, to the gravity of his works. Okay, fourth, his father also testifies that Jesus is his son. Verse 37 says, And the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. We don't know exactly the reference here that's being referred to, that how the father specifically refers to Jesus. It might be to when Jesus was baptized in Matthew 3.17. It says, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So it it could be that. It could just be a general way of reading the Bible, that the Father is continually pointing to something greater, that the prophets are speaking of this Messiah who is to come, that there is this one who will save God's people. And so uh, there are, and there's many symbols that we could point to throughout the Old Testament as well and say, well, the sacrificial system, it could never truly take away sin. They had to repeatedly make the sacrifices. It pointed forward to something more, something greater, which is ultimately Jesus. Okay, so the Father also points forward or testifies, bears witness about Jesus. And it's here in this part of the narrative where Jesus' comments increase in forcefulness. So he begins to draw some very clear lines in the sand with these people that he is talking with. So in verses, the the last part of verse 37 and into 38, it reads, his voice, and Jesus is talking about his father, his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. So we have to understand As Jesus is saying this, this is grievously offensive to these people. 
Because these people think that their whole life revolves around God. So basically, what Jesus is saying here is, you claim to worship the one true God, Yahweh, Jehovah. You claim to worship Him. You claim that He is your Father, that you are His people. But right now, as I talk to you with His words, you cannot hear His voice. You do not hear his voice, even as it's being spoken to you. Right now, you can't see his form, though I stand in front of you as the embodiment of my Father. Right now, his word does not abide in you. And I know this because he sent me. My Father sent me to you. I have come from the one that you claim to worship. But rather than believe in me, you reject me. And in that, you also reject my Father. The fifth example that we see here is uh, Scripture. So Jesus goes on to give this example of Scripture and how that testifies to Jesus as well. So we're going to take a little diversion in this one because I want to mine something out here in verse 39. Verse 39 begins, you search the Scriptures. And I want to stop right there. Uh, to speak to something uh, regarding just the Bible in and of itself. So have you, have you guys ever found yourself uh, wondering, can I trust the Bible? I've heard these stories about how it was put together. Is it reliable? Was it put together by sinful men? How, how can I really trust that what it says is true? Now, honestly, this is a massive obstacle for people to come to faith initially. But even for people who trust in Jesus, this can continually arise doubts for them. So seeds of doubts. Uh, because there's this uncertainty and just uh, we, we don't know for sure. Uh, maybe it's because we haven't studied it or whatever it is. Maybe it's because of some, something that someone said to us at some point. But we might just have this queasiness, this uneasiness about, can I really believe this? Can I really trust it. Now, maybe some of you have heard this said, that the Bible was put together by a bunch of sinful men in the fourth century. And, and if, if that's how the Bible was put together, can I really trust it? It's just put together by people just like me. What, why, would, why would I trust them to put together this book that I'm supposed to base my whole life on? Now, it is true that the canon, so the canon is basically the Bible uh, as it exists today, that it was put together in, in one sense in the fourth century, okay? And in that I mean it was formally recognized, it was put together as these 66 books were put together at that time. They were formally recognized. However, these books that were formally recognized in the fourth century had been read, had been viewed as scripture for centuries prior to this. This is what Jesus means when he says, you search the scriptures. What are those scriptures? They are what we know as the Old Testament now, today. And so what we see in the Bible is that the Bible is self-attesting. It, the, the fact that the, the, what I'm talking about right here with the scriptures, this isn't the main point that Jesus is talking about right now, right? But it informs our understanding of Scripture, how it was put together, that it existed prior to the fourth century, that it wasn't just a bunch of guys saying, ah, oh, this seems like a good book, let's throw that one in there, but that there were authoritative Scriptures that people read for centuries. And this is Jesus speaking of this. And, and he's not saying they're not authoritative. He's saying they are Scripture. You should be reading these. And so there's this one story, and that if you read the Bible, if you understand the Bible, if you see the whole storyline that weaves throughout the Bible, there is one story. And it's this glorious thing that it does connect together, that these authors who span thousands of years are writing the same story, and the way that they can write the same story is because the one who's inspiring it is the same. The God who stands behind Scripture is the same God. So if you read the New Testament, especially the Gospels, you find Jesus quoting the Old Testament over and over and over. And so the Bible is self-attesting in that way that Jesus is saying, 
this is scripture. So anytime you would find Jesus quoting a scripture, you can say, oh yeah, that's from a book that is authoritative. That's from a book that they read as scripture at that time. And, and we find this throughout the New Testament, that, that there's New Testament authors that are continually quoting the Old Testament as well as each other as well. And so the main theme that we see throughout the Bible is that it's continually pointing to Jesus. And this is immensely important because this is what Jesus is saying in our passage today. He's saying that the scriptures that you search, they bear witness about me. That is the point of the scriptures. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says, the whole Old Testament is about me. He says, the law and the prophets and the Psalms, all of those books are about me. I am the point of the Bible. That is how you appropriately and accurately and rightly read the Bible. It has to get to Jesus. He is the point of the whole thing. But these Jews, they weren't looking for Jesus. They, even though this Messiah had been promised over and over, they didn't want it, at least not in the form of Jesus. They had a construction in their minds of what they wanted the Messiah to look like, and it did not jive with Jesus. Nor were they looking for Jesus' Father in the Scriptures. What they were looking for was a form of self-salvation. They were looking for something that would build their reputation, that would allow others to be impressed with them. If they could follow the law impeccably, if they could memorize it, Others would be impressed with them. Others would follow them, and they would be marveled at. And that is what they really wanted. So there's a warning in here for us as well. So listen to this. This, if we pull this into our modern day, you can go to a Bible study for years. You can be committed to this Bible study. But if that Bible study does little to nothing in terms of causing you to marvel at Jesus, if it does little to nothing to cause your faith in Jesus to grow, if it does little to nothing to cause you to serve others or to kill sin in your own heart, then it's really no good at all. So what we can learn from this is that studying the Bible can be evil. Studying the Bible can be evil. If studying the Bible doesn't get us to Jesus, if it's about us, if we, if we read the Bible and where we end up is it's about me, what I do, we're reading the Bible wrong. Because the point of reading the Bible is to get to Jesus, for us to see him for who he really is, that he is the one who deserves to be worshipped. It's not our reputation that's on the line. Our reputation is toast if we can honestly assess ourselves. It's Jesus' reputation. And his reputation will not fail. Knowing the Bible, for us to say, well, we just need to memorize the Bible. Knowing the Bible won't save us. It will not save us. It can help. The Jews thought that eternal life and salvation was found in the Bible, in them memorizing it, in them obeying it, which is partially true. Because Jesus, we learn of Jesus in the Bible, right? But the Bible points outside of itself. The Bible points outside of itself to Jesus. The point of the Bible is to know and to trust Jesus. That we would give ourselves over to him. We would trust him in every area of our lives. He would sit on the throne of our lives. So Jesus is saying to them, all of Scripture points to me. It points to me, but you refuse to come to me. And then Jesus, in verse 41, it, it almost seems like he goes down a rabbit trail because he says, I do not receive glory from people. Which is kind of a weird thing to say, right? I do not receive glory from people. Jesus is saying he doesn't need praise from people. He doesn't need it. So that's what he means when he doesn't receive it. 
He's saying that the, he doesn't receive glory in a way that he's dependent on it. As though if we give him praise one day, that then he's, he's having a great day. And if we fail on another day, that then he's despairing or devastated. He, he doesn't receive praise in that way. And so we could, we could ask the question, I think it'd be a good question to ask, well, if, if he doesn't receive it, why should we give it? Why should we give praise to God if he doesn't receive it? The answer is because we need to give praise to God. We're born in such a way that we cannot help worshiping things. You will worship things, whether you're thinking about it or not, whether you're trying to or not, we cannot stop worshiping. We can't. My family was watching uh, the Minions movie yesterday. And if, if you've seen it, and you remember the beginning of the movie, there's this narrative that happens at the beginning of the movie. And it's talking about how the Minions, they want a leader. They want somebody that they can follow. And it kind of goes through this timeline of history, and it highlights some of the big events and some of the big civilizations in history. And it says, oh, we thought that we were going to get our leader at this time, and, and it never happened. And so they're on this kind of eternal quest to find a leader, somebody they can put their hope in, somebody that they can worship. And this is us. We want someone that we can look at and we can admire, that we can trust in. And, and the thing is, we'll put it somewhere. We all put our hope in something. We all worship someone or something because we cannot stop doing it. For the Jews, they worship the scriptures. And the attention that they would get from knowing the scriptures really well. So we need to give glory to Jesus to remind ourselves of his greatness and to remind ourselves of our lack of greatness. We need to worship Jesus because if we're not worshiping him, we're worshiping something less than, something that will fail us, something that does not deserve our worship. In this, when Jesus says, I do not receive glory from people, he's also giving a rebuke to these Jews because we read in a couple verses that they are seeking glory from others. They want that from other people. They thrive on that. And that's a well that they continually have to go back to that dries up. It dries up. They're not getting their praise. They'll despair. And they have to go back to that well. Where can I get more of that water? Where can I get more praise from somebody to satisfy me? And it's a well that continually dries up. They might get a little taste of it, of the water from that well at one point. But what we see is that the glory that they receive ebbs and flows. It's fickle. It'll come and it'll go, and ultimately it will leave them disappointed. So the fifth example is that the scriptures also testify to who Jesus is. Lastly, Jesus goes to Moses. This is their boy. Je Moses is their boy because he is the one who gave the Jewish people, the law. And they esteem, they revere the law. They have set their hope on Moses, but they have set their hope specifically on their ability to keep the law. But the problem here is that they're treating Moses and the law as an end to salvation, rather than letting the law expose their need for a better Savior than themselves. So God gave the Ten Commandments to us so that we would understand we can't save ourselves. That's the point of the Ten Commandments, that we cannot save ourselves. And so we talk about this often here at Center Church. Jesus fulfilled the law. So we don't walk around today. When we leave today, I'm not going to give you a list of things. Go do these things to be a good Christian. Jesus fulfilled the law. He did the things that we cannot do. 
We're called to believe in Jesus, not be Jesus, to believe in Jesus. Only he could keep the law perfectly. We cannot do that. And when we try and do that, we'll get on this treadmill that we'll never, we'll never get off until we just fall off of, from exhaustion. Because we cannot climb a ladder to God. We can't run fast enough and hard enough to get to God. Only Jesus can do it. And so the call for us is to believe in Jesus. And that's the opposite of what these Jews are doing. They're believing, they're hoping, they're trusting in Moses and the law and their ability to keep the law. So Jesus says, because you view Moses as a savior, because you hope in him, he is going to accuse you. He's going to accuse you. I don't even need to accuse you. Moses is going to accuse you because if you listened and believed Moses and what he said, you'd hear that he's saying the same thing as I am. And so I don't need to accuse you. Moses is going to do that. The law that I gave to Moses is going to accuse you because he says in verse 46, Moses wrote of me. Moses wrote of me is what Jesus is saying. And this could be a reference to Deuteronomy 18:15 where Moses says to the people of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And, and, and so this gets back to the point we were talking about with the scriptures earlier. The way to appropriately read the Bible is to always be asking, how does, if we're in the Old Testament, how does this point forward to Jesus? If we're in the New Testament, how does this point back to Jesus? Where is the gospel? Where is the good news of Jesus in these verses? How do these verses make much of Jesus? Or how do they expose our need for Jesus? That's ultimately where we have to get. Now, there's danger in here in this for us because as we look at the Jews and what they're doing with Jesus, they're looking at Moses and they're basically making Moses say what they want him to say. And, and we run that same risk, that we can make Jesus say what we want him to say. And so there's, there's hard things in the Bible, there's, there's tough things, but we can't pick and choose and say, I like this, but not this. I think it was Thomas Jefferson. He was the one who, he had his Bible and what he did is he, he took scissors and he like literally cut out sections of the Bible that he didn't like. And so his Bible was just the parts that he wanted it to be. It, we, do, we are not for that at all. Like this, the whole Bible, all of Jesus' words is what we would say we need to follow. We need to obey. And I think, so gave six examples. I think we could even maybe add a seventh example, but I didn't put this on the screen. Um, because in verse 42, uh, Jesus says, I know you don't have the love of God in you. And it's almost uh, a reverse bearing witness that they're bearing witness to themselves based on how they're reacting to Jesus. Because God's love for his people produces something very different than what they are emanating. So, Jesus' love will kill pride. It will kill self-righteousness. And it will also kill our desire to obey the law, to try and impress God, to earn something from God. Okay. So, at the end of our sermons, we, we do what we call gospel application. And we do this because uh, typically a sermon would say, this is the application. Okay, these are the four steps that you can take from here. Now go do these. And, and what my desire for all of you is that when you leave here, you would be remembering not all the things that you have to do, but you would remember what Jesus has done. That you would understand that the Bible is not about you, it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus revealing himself, God revealing Jesus to us. So it's all about him. So we do gospel application to emphasize who Jesus is and what he has done, not what we need to do. Not what we need to do. So, first of all, we get a picture of Jesus' love in these verses. And, and I'll phrase it with this question. 
why do you think Jesus kept going here? So he's got a bounty on his head from people who've seen him work in some pretty impressive ways. They've seen his power. They've seen him demonstrate and do things that they've never seen before, but yet they put a bounty on his head. And, and these are people who know the scriptures. They know the promise of a Messiah. And so I think part of what we need to see, not just in these verses, but throughout the scriptures, is that Jesus wants us to know how he feels about us, how he loves us. Some people would read this and say, well, what Jesus is going to do on the cross, that's just divine child abuse. No loving father would cause a son to do that. But we talked about last week, Jesus does what he sees his father doing. And so in some way, the sacrifice that we see Jesus have, he's seen that in his father. He wouldn't, he wouldn't sacrifice in those ways unless he's seen his father sacrifice similarly. And, and the whole idea of divine child abuse, that, that says that it's not hard for God the Father, that, that he has no feelings towards his son. He cares deeply about his son. Deeply. And so Jesus, he's going to go to the cross. He's compelled to do that because he's seen his father sacrifice similarly. Jesus loves. He loves his enemies. He loves his enemies, me, you. He loves those who want to kill him. He cares for those who do not deserve it. And, and we should feel this care. We shouldn't just think that this is a theological concept of love and then we study that. But we should feel the weightiness of Jesus' love and the way that he pursues us. He runs after us. And this isn't just some Sunday stroll, ho-hum walk that Jesus is like, oh, whistling, his, whistling Dixie, right? Like, he is robustly pursuing those who don't deserve it because he loves. He is driven and compelled by his love. He has come to save, not to condemn. Satan condemns. Jesus comes to save because he sees this need that exists within us. We need to be saved. We cannot save ourselves. So when we look at Jesus, we should see his love and, and also what we should see his, his sacrifice. And the place where honor is due, where praise should go, is where sacrifice is being made. We can see all around us this fact that people want honor, right? You see somebody running up a, uh, an athletic field or, or an athletic court, right? And they pound their chest. They think they deserve praise. They deserve honor. What sacrifice? What sacrifice have they made to deserve that? Sure, they probably spent a lot of hours in the gym, in the weight room to do that, right? But at least the ones that we're watching on TV, they're financially motivated, right? Where do you see sacrifice, like true sacrifice out of love? Ultimately, we see it in Jesus, but where do you see glimpses of that around your life? That's where honor should be given. Who sacrifices for you? Who lovingly gives of themselves for you? Not because they can earn something, not because you'll give them something back, not because they can gain something in the whole exchange, but because they love you. They sacrifice, they give of themselves, their time, their energy, their money, their possessions. They give of themselves for you. Give honor there. And be reminded, that's a glimpse of the gospel. That's a glimpse of Jesus. And may it stir your affections so that ultimately you would want to praise and honor Jesus. So we get this compelling picture of who Jesus is, and he reveals himself in these verses in such a way to say, everything points to me. John the Baptist, the scriptures, Moses, my father, everything points to me. But he's not doing this bait and switch here. He's not saying, okay, everything bears witness to me, so, so go bear witness. He doesn't put that yoke upon us. It's not here. Do you see that in, those ver in these verses? Say, go bear witness about Jesus. It's not here. 
It'll come. It'll come. But what Jesus is going after here is your heart. He wants to capture their heart. He could put this yoke upon them and say, just go do this religious ritual. Just out of obligation, go tell people about me. But what he wants is people's hearts. He wants them to be stirred by his love. Not by duty, not by obligation, but by his love. He wants that to change them, to transform them. And so he goes after their hearts, and he goes after our hearts. And, and as we read these verses, we should, we should be hit and struck by the fact that everywhere we look, everywhere we go, there is something, there is someone bearing witness to Jesus. It's right in front of our eyes. The very things that we trust in at times are evidence of Jesus. So, as an example, in the last six weeks or so, we have gone in our out-of-doors from being gray and brown to the, the foliage exploding and just being filled with green, right? This is a picture of what Jesus does. He takes people who are dead in their sin and he raises them to life. The foliage exploding at this time of year is an example of resurrection. It's bearing witness to a greater, ultimate reality, which is Jesus. You guys could get this even in, in the coffee that you drink. If, if you're laying in bed and you smell the coffee, or you're not laying in bed, you've had to make it yourself, you smell the aroma, it's, it's a reminder of the good gifts that God gives. It beckons you. That smell beckons you. And similarly, what Jesus wants to do in the hearts of those who trust in him is to create this pleasing aroma, figuratively speaking, so that others, when they encounter us, they get glimpses, they get smells, they get tastes of who Jesus is. Mud puddles. It's appropriate for what's been happening the last number of days, right? There's lots of mud puddles. Mud puddles bear witness to Jesus. You can see a child go out and play in a mud puddle, okay? And we can say, uh, man, they are so easily satisfied, right? They don't even need a toy. Just go play in a mud puddle. But the other side of that coin to a child being so easily satisfied is an adult being too easily satisfied. C.S. Lewis paints this picture and he says we'll go and we'll play in mud puddles not even realizing there's this vacation this tropical vacation with blue green waters that beckons us but we'll go play and get all dirty in this mud puddle rather than running to this great vacation vacation of a lifetime in this tropical destination where the sun beats down on us and warms us and we'll be satisfied too easily satisfied in this mud puddle, muddying, messing ourselves, not enjoying what Jesus really has for us. Everything, everywhere, there are people, there are things bearing witness to Jesus. And then lastly here, read your Bibles. And this, this me saying this even, like this feels a little out of character because I don't even say this a lot, right? But read your Bibles. As you read your Bibles, do it to encounter Jesus. Do it to encounter Jesus. As I said earlier, the Bible isn't about us. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. The point is that you would encounter Jesus. You would find hope. You would find something way beyond yourself. Because if we make the Bible about ourselves, will cultivate this spiritual life that is, for one, it's just impotent. There will be no power in our spiritual life. We do not possess the power of life like Jesus does. He does. We do not. So our spiritual life will be impotent if we read our Bibles in such a way and make it about ourselves. If we, if we read our Bibles in such a way to make it about ourselves, we'll also have spiritual lives that are fearful. Because we'll continually see how we are lacking, how we need more, but we don't have any, else, any other place we can go. 
If it's about us, then we need to measure up. We need to do more. We need to work harder, do better. But if it's about Jesus, we see he already has. He has done the work we cannot do. He is better. And also, if we read our Bibles in such a way to make them about ourselves, we'll have a spiritual life that's unattractive because what we will turn the Bible into is a laundry, laundry list of rules. Rather than God revealing it being God's revelation of himself, it turns into this list of rules that we are to follow. And I guarantee you that will be attractive or unattractive to most people. So we read our Bibles to be reminded of Jesus' promises of what he has done. Not of what, the, of what man-made rules say we need to do, but of what Jesus has done, of who he is. So to kind of condense last week and this week, a day is coming when everybody is going to bear witness about Jesus. Philippians 2.10 says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We talked about last week how Jesus, or Jesus spoke of his work being two ultimate things, judgment or resurrection. So everyone will bear witness of Jesus, whether it's in judgment or in resurrection. And so the call, the plea for all of us is that we would believe in Jesus, that we would bear witness to him today, whether it's for the first time or it's for the thousandth time, that we would rest in him. We would believe in who Jesus is and what he has done. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us your word and in that conveying to us who you are and what you have done. God, where there are obstacles in our hearts that cause us to want to run away from you, to disbelieve in you, I pray that you would pick us up and you would carry us over those obstacles, that you would show us yourself, you would reveal your glory to us so that we would understand you in a way that we have never understand, understood you before, that we would encounter you in a way where we are blown away by your glory and your beauty and your power and your kindness. So God, would you graciously look upon us today? Fill our hearts, cause our hearts to swell in belief in you. For you alone deserve our praise and you alone are the one that we should trust in. You will never fail. You are a great God. May our hope be found solely in you. In your great name I pray, amen.